Officially here, the tournament kicked off this morning in Moscow, Russia, and the race is on to see who will lift the trophy on July 15th. But perhaps even more exciting is that in eight years' time, this tournament will officially be played on Canadian soil for the first time ever. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and we will talk about all that and more on today's Footy Talks podcast, but there is no better place to start than in Russia, where the hosts have already made quite an impression with a 5-0 victory over Saudi Arabia. Uh, their win means that the host nation has never lost to an op- or the opening match in a World Cup tournament in 21 competitions. Uh, Oliver Platt of the TFC Report and Pro Soccer USA is my guest today. Uh, Ollie, is Russia going to win the World Cup here? Um, possibly. <laughs> Golovin, Golden Ball, Russia win the World Cup. Could happen. No, I, I don't think so, but... Um... It was a good performance from them, and like when you get a bit of confidence in the first game, there's quite a lot of upsets in the first game, even with some of the the bigger teams that have been hosting or have been defending champions in previous years. Um, so to get the ball rolling in in a good way is is definitely good for Russia. Now we'll see if, for example, if if Egypt or Uruguay loses tomorrow, mm. um, Russia's all of a sudden in a little bit of a decent position to put the pressure on. So this this game did change your impression of of Russia even you know Saudi Arabia <laughs> in a lot of ways they also uh, were on the other end of the spectrum where they were very disappointing in this game but um, I, I know going into the tournament there was a lot of talk about how poor this Russian team was um, you know do you think that this does mean that maybe they're a little better than we've been giving them credit for maybe it's hard to say against the team that like struggled as badly as Saudi Arabia did um, you know I I think Saudi Arabia had a few players who went over to play in Spain like in advance of this tournament and you could mm-hmm. kind of tell because they were very like keen to have the ball and to play around and they just weren't really good enough to do that. Um, so Russia was, were able to be solid and kind of counter-attack and that that should set them up well for the next two games because that's the type of games that those are going to be. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't see Russia being more than a last 16 team at best. Um, they have, but Golovin looks like a really good player. Um, they have some options up front and some ability to, to create chances. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. You mentioned the Saudi Arabian uh, loan deal with La Liga and um, a very interesting uh, deal to to say the least. Apparently only yeah. 19 minutes of playing time for the Saudi Arabian players who went over. So it doesn't seem like it, it was the best experiment, uh, more of a marketing thing than anything for La Liga. But... Um, you know, like you said, Golovan was the player who stood out uh, far and away the most in this opening match. Uh, what did you make of him? He's he's obviously a very key player for this Russian team, and even in the pre-tournament, everyone was saying, um, you know, he's the one player that could really make a huge difference for Russia. And some of the balls he was playing in that first game, including that free kick at the end, were unbelievable. Yeah, he looks talented, like a just. A player who's got most of the the key skills you look for in a playmaker really ability to put crosses in can pick a pass has that set piece threat as well um what what's kind of a shame for russia is is zagoyev looking like he's getting injured mm. uh he or he will be injured for the possibly the remainder of the tournament if that's a muscle strain or something um and that kind of maybe will allow teams to focus in on golovin and and mark him very closely because there's maybe not 
another big creative threat uh, in the midfield without Zagoyev. So we'll see how that works out against Egypt and Uruguay. But he's a talented kid. He's going to go to a big club, I think, uh, if not this summer, then fairly soon. I like how the second Zagoyev went down, the commentator decided, yeah, hamstring out for the tournament. <laughs> it was one of those <laughs> hilarious... Uh, doctor commentator moments i've ever seen but um let's move on then to eight years time kind of the big news certainly here in canada uh announced in the early hours of the morning yesterday that the united bid of canada the united states and morocco uh are being awarded the 2026 world cup uh beating out uh morocco um and uh you know, FIFA has still to confirm fully what the distribution of the games are going to be, but uh, right now it looks like the United States are going to host 60 games while both Canada and Mexico will be given 10 each. Um, of course, that being the first 48-team uh, tournament, um, which is why there's so many games. Um, I, I think right away everyone here in Canada started drawing parallels to uh, the 94 World Cup in the United States, which was just such a huge moment for their soccer program and really turned around the game in that country. Um, but, you know, there's definitely no guarantees that the same thing is going to happen this year. Uh, Ollie, for you, what are the most important things for um, making sure this, this tournament, um, even as a co-host, it leaves a lasting impression uh, on the program here in Canada? Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Like, it's kind of hard to quantify what the World Cup in itself really does uh, in the long term. I think the really key thing is that it's used as kind of... Uh, a motivational tool or, or kind of a catalyst for more development in the eight years between now and then in terms of the, the standards of Canadian soccer. So at youth level, obviously at the professional level with the, the Premier League coming in, um, in terms of you know how we're educating coaches, all of these things that are key for a, a strong uh, men's national team. I, I think that's where you know using the World Cup as kind of a tool to to accelerate and improve all of those things is is where you'll see a lasting effect i think i don't think hosting a world cup in and of itself changes anything um, but what you can do is is use kind of the the excitement the willingness to invest maybe from governing bodies and so on um you know the the infrastructure that's built around a world cup you can use that to improve your you know the what you're doing to to, to develop your own national product and as I said, Canada is only hosting 10 games uh, during this tournament. And for some, that's been a, a criticism is, you know, are we just are we just, uh, you know, a vessel to allow the United States to host this tournament? Um, do you think that is a concern at all that it's it's only 10 games? I don't know. I, I think the other way you could argue it is that well, some of the same people might be saying if Canada was going for the whole tournament that this is a ridiculous huge expense and yeah. completely unsustainable in terms of all the st stadiums and training facilities that are going to be needed so I think it's a way to get the tournament into Canada 10 games is like it doesn't sound like a lot but it's going to be at least you know three games three or four games in Toronto a couple of other cities potentially um, it's still quite a big deal I think and you're still going to get you know, potentially some training camps in Canada as well. Um, a lot of other stadiums in the US that are kind of within distance for, for fans to potentially go to. So, like, yeah, I don't think it's feasible right now for Canada to, Canada to host a full World Cup. Um, and I think we've got to remember, even when we're talking about 10 games, that we only really have one city right now that's kind of like nailed on as a host, right? Uh, now Vancouver has dropped out. So, 
Um, I think it's it's a good start and a good way to be involved without having the kind of heavy expense and, and investment that, that's required for a full World Cup. This was such an interesting voting process because at the very start, uh, it really seemed like you know Morocco was very much going to be the second fiddle. I know, um, I know when it was you know very initially announced, it seemed like it was almost a certainty that the United bid would would win out because it just made too much sense. Then Morocco seemed to to go on a bit of a, a swing, and a lot of people were projecting. And obviously, vote projections haven't been uh, haven't been going so well recently, and for a <laughs> lot of different reasons lately. But uh, where a lot of people were projecting, actually, Morocco would win out. In, in the end, it wasn't very close at all. 134 to 75 for the United bid, and a lot of the countries actually that came out in support of Morocco, such as Russia, um, ended up voting for the United bid, which was a big surprise. It, um, Africa didn't vote as a block. That kind of changed things as well. That was supposed to be almost a guarantee for Morocco that they could get uh, most of Africa. Um, in the end, what do you think made the huge difference? I think uh, I can hear you know cash registers going off. Perhaps that's one of them, but uh, which always seems to rule things around FIFA. But what did make the difference? Do you think in this being such a lopsided win for the United bid? Um, I don't know, to be honest. Like it, It's the first time that the process has been done like this, obviously. Um, they changed it after Russia and Qatar to one vote per member association. So it's it's kind. Of, it was difficult beforehand to get a read on how things were going. Obviously, a lot of people were projecting Morocco to do much better than they did. Um, it was difficult to imagine, you know, at the time, how countries were going to vote. Um, there was definitely... You know the the way this new system works. There definitely seems to be the risk of anti-American sentiment playing a big part, um, and you know, kind of having maybe political influence in in the votes. Uh, that didn't really happen in the end. I don't why that was. I don't know. Um, the simple answer is that the United bid was the better bid by a long <laughs> way. Uh, like in terms of just the kind of uh, the ability to safely put on. Uh, a big event of this magnitude there's much less risk with with the united bid in terms of the expenses in terms of the stadiums and facilities that are already in existence um all of these things so i i guess you know kind of uh it it always seems like there should be more to it when we're talking about fifa but it's kind of just like they they voted for the bid that was the most appropriate bid which is kind of like a weird thing to be saying Again, we never know exactly what goes on behind the scenes yeah. uh, during during any of this. But um, one of the things that seemed to kind of win over a, a number of nations, at least from what I've read, is perhaps this idea of uh, bidding together as countries, you know, putting together a united bid or, or a multi-country bid, because it does allow a lot of uh, other countries maybe to get involved that couldn't potentially host a World Cup on their own. Obviously, the only joint World Cup so far was 2002, uh, Japan, South Korea. Um, but it looks like at least uh, for 2030, um, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay will uh, potentially put a bid together. Of course, that being the 100-year anniversary of the World Cup, and uh, Uruguay hosted the original World Cup. So um, th this gives them an opportunity to um, kind of use uh, other countries and their facilities to uh, as a means to host a World Cup that they maybe couldn't do on their own. 
Um, we've seen the financial burden, obviously, that this has had on a lot of countries. Evidently, the Brazil, you know, the bus parking lots that some of those stadiums have become, and uh, among other things. And um, it, obviously, there are still countries out there like England, France, and Germany that could potentially host it on their own. But especially with 48 countries now, or for, yeah, 48 teams being allowed in the tournament now, this just seems like such a smart way forward for. Um, you know, to make this not the ridiculous uh, bankruptcy black hole that it can be for countries. Yeah, it's a good point. And the Euros are going to 32 teams as well. And mm -hmm. we're going to have that basically all over Europe, I think, in, in 2020. So that definitely seems like a sensible way forward um, rather than, you know, putting just an enormous burden on a country like Morocco. And, and as you said, it allows potentially some smaller countries that wouldn't be able to even dream of hosting a 32-team World Cup. It allows them to get involved too. I don't even know if I can name 32 European countries. <laughs> it does oh. seem to be most of the uh, confederation, yeah. I'll, I'll try later. That's not that's not great podcasting audio. Um, but <laughs> with this uh, expansion to 48 teams, what are your thoughts on it? Because I know a lot of traditionalists... Uh, definitely don't like it. Uh, will will be very interesting. Obviously, instead of the the normal group stage, they have the three team group stage and then a round of thirty two, um, followed by the usual knockout stage. So it kind of changes the format almost completely. Yeah, I'm not sure what to think of it really. Like some part of me thinks that people have got reacted negatively to it just for the sake of reacting negatively to anything that changes in a tournament like this. Um, I think also when you look at you look at 2014 for example and the best part of the tournament was the group stage and some of the mm. upsets and some of the teams that we maybe we didn't know so much about um you know I think that's one thing that's the, that the World Cup has kind of lost is that we see so much soccer nowadays with all the TV all the leagues that are on TV um that there's really really very little mystery coming into a World Cup about who the best players are you know what each team is like and I think when we get a team that kind of comes in as a team that no one's really thinking about, no one knows a great deal about from a smaller nation, uh, and kind of surprises everyone, that's one of the one of the most enjoyable things about a World Cup to me. Um, and if bringing in forty eight teams gets us a little bit more of that, I don't mind it so much. Um, I don't mind seeing a bit more variety and in terms of continents uh, and the way the the places are allocated too. Um, obviously the the concern is that you dilute the quality um, and probably the main concern for me is how that kind of three team group stage looks um, you know whether that really works out and and produces exciting games or whether it produces more dead rubbers at the end of the group stage I don't know I we'd have to just see it in action but I, I'm kind of willing to give it a shot maybe more so than than people have been generally yeah at its best i mean it could almost be a march madness type situation where right, you right. see a lot of those a lot more uh, upsets because evidently like the same five teams have won the world cup for the past a long while and as much as we like to think the world cup um kind of anyone can win it it hasn't always been the case so maybe this would cause a couple more upsets a couple more of those unpredictable knockout games uh 
but at worst, I mean, we could be seeing more teams like Saudi Arabia um, <laughs> get involved in maybe more countries that uh, just aren't ready. But it does seem like the the international um, pool of teams is deepening, and there are ways now that teams are able to play um, that kind of uh, can, can equalize if they can be tactically strong. And uh, Iceland, uh, for example, um, if they can play like that, they seem to be able to pull off some re- unexpected results. Um, getting back to the, the 2026 World Cup bid, uh, we now know that three cities, three stadiums, in fact, uh, will be hosting in Canada. BMO Fields, uh, Commonwealth Stadium, and the Big O uh, will be the three venues. It seems like, um, from all reports, BMO Field is going to get four games, so they're likely to get a round of 16 game, um, while Montreal and Edmonton are, are likely to get three um, the one that stands out for me for sure in all of this would be the Big O, which uh, it sounds like they're going to spend between $300 million and $200 million, uh, on a retractable roof, um, which kind of begs the question, why not just build a new stadium? I mean, what if BMO Field cost close to $200 million, I think, for both the renovations and the construction? I mean, it's a fine, serviceable stadium for World Cup needs. Yeah, um, it's kind of, it's a bit of a weird one with the Big O, like, I think there may be some kind of um, some historical architectural value there that is preventing them from just knocking it down. Mm. I think the costs of knocking it down are also pretty enormous. Um, but then also, as you said, the costs of building a new roof are also huge. So it, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with it, I think. Um, but yeah, that's a stadium that, you know, it, it was built for a big event. So it has some of the kind of space requirements and, and, and I guess things like that for for something like a world cup but in terms of how up to date it is and how <laughs> you know how it measures up with modern world cup stadiums it's nowhere near it's going to need a huge amount of work so yeah it'll be interesting to see how that kind of pans out yeah as you said it's not just the roof that they need to fix i mean it's it needs modernizing in a whole bunch of ways um for anyone who's ever stepped in that stadium so um that's definitely going to be the interesting one in terms of uh, Canadian cities to watch over the next couple of years um, because Tron- or Toronto and Edmonton I mean Toronto they're going to need to to add more seats whether those are temporary or, or permanent it's it's 10,000 which is not all that many in Edmonton it's mostly just grass from what I understand they'll have to install a grass pitch and maybe do a little bit more work but they're pretty close already on uh, on numbers so um but in terms of uh, now the impact here in Canada, uh, this has to be great news. I mean, I'd imagine at the Canadian Premier League offices, they were going nuts when this happened because uh, I think, honestly, regardless of, of what happened with this World Cup bid, the Canadian Premier League would be a positive thing to come out of it in terms of a league for, for Canada. But this has to push the league forward a lot and give them almost a purpose in, the, in their early few years. You'd hope so, yeah, especially in terms of maybe attracting some Canadian players home uh, mm. to come back to the league. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting because obviously with MLS, it was kind of formed in in reaction to a World Cup. It came in in 96, two years after the, the 94 tournament. Um, Canadian Premier League is going to get eight years prior to the tournament. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic as to how a World Cup maybe changes their focus, if at all. Um you know how it it affects the development of homegrown players and and maybe the investment in that side of things. Um, I, I don't think it 
in the short term, I don't think it changes too much. I think it probably just helps create that sense of excitement around the league, and mm. and hopefully, um, yeah, we'll put a few more eyes on it with that World Cup kind of looming on the horizon. And evidently, in eight years' time, everyone will be hoping that this Canadian team uh, can kind of get its act together a little bit, can be competitive um, on the world stage. I mean, um, certainly the new tournament format will probably help Canada, will will give them a better chance of, you know, going a little further in this tournament. But um, there's still a bit of a a ways to go to get this team uh, kind of up to standard, even in CONCACAF. Um, what are the biggest keys, do you think, over these next eight years that um, could make this Canadian team competitive, both of the region and, and more importantly, on the world stage? Um, well, I think, obviously, you've got an opportunity to get in with some kids who are quite young right now who will be mm. at the right kind of age to play in the World Cup. So it's not as if most of the, you know, most of their development is already done and you're kind of just waiting to see if anyone pans out. There's still players who have you know their four or five key years of their development ahead of them so they have time to really put a plan in place now to de- develop a team and obviously that's what John Herdman is trying to do um, I, yeah I, I think they need to do what they can to kind of help out the MLS clubs in particular I know there's going to be a lot of talk about the Canadian Premier League and, and obviously that should be supported at a youth level and that, that's a great thing for young Canadian players to have that professional pathway but I think when you look at TFC the Whitecaps and, and the impacts they have that kind of foothold underneath them now, they're professional clubs they're clubs that have some high level players um, some high level people they have resources and you know that's going to be where I, I personally think that's going to be where the big talent is coming through, you know that's going to be the pathway for those players like, like Alfonso Davies like Jonathan Azorio um, it, it's going to be through the MLS academies just because they're in place and they're already you know highly professional and they've had a, you know, in TFC's case they've had a decade to make mistakes you know and, mm-hmm. and figure it out and so. they made a lot of them <laughs> <laughs> right and so yeah I, I think definitely I, I don't think we felt the the full effect of that either like having professional clubs to me is where you build national teams it's, it's in their academies more more so in some ways than it is in kind of national training centers yeah and those academies do finally seem to be hitting their stride a little bit in terms of development i know you mentioned davies um the impact and regardless of his international allegiances they did sell an academy player to barcelona this year so um that's a step forward for their academy and obviously Toronto FC seems to be able to produce at least a few players who are capable of first team minutes so um, that's a good sign as well Um, are there any of those players I mean you know predicting a World Cup roster eight years away is is a bit of a fool's errand who knows what some of these players will turn out to be um, by that stage but I know you you put out a thing on Twitter where um, you you were kind of for fun asking people to pick five players who who could potentially be stuck starting for Canada um, at that tournament. Is there any players in particular that you'll be keeping an eye on um, as potential 2026 World Cuppers for Canada? Yeah, well, beyond Davies, he's obviously the the clear frontrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Liam Miller, who's the next obvious one, I would say, the young forward playing at Liverpool in their academy teams. He's made his debut recently uh, in John Herdman's first game against New Zealand, and he was good he was very bright and he's clearly someone to keep an eye on 
Um, there's been a little bit of talk that maybe he could go to Rangers on loan with Steven Gerrard there, so that would be interesting to, to see with him. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, there's obviously Belu Tabla and whether he commits. I personally have almost zero expectations he will. I think he's going to play for Ivory Coast, Same. but <laughs> but that's one to keep an eye on at least anyway. Um, and then, you know, obviously I know more about CFC's young players than I do about the impacts of the Whitecaps, so I'm kind of biased or tilted in, towards uh, the names in their academy, but I think obviously Liam Fraser is one you have to keep an eye on. He's really impressed me with the first team this year. I think he's made a pretty seamless transition to, to MLS soccer. He's still got a lot of work to do, but he looks comfortable out there. Uh, and then playing for TFC2 right now, there's, you know, despite their record, there's some really interesting players down there. Um, Julian Dunn is one, I think. There's not many centre-back prospects uh, Canada has right now that mm-hmm. are playing at the level he is at the age he's at. Um, Aiden Daniels has had a great season, plays the same position as Davies, so that's going to be a bit of a roadblock for him, <laughs> but but he's a talented young player. Um, and then obviously there's been a bit of talk about Noble Akello. He, he's far too far away for me for to make any kind of projection about what he's going to be. He's really raw, but he is very talented. Um, so there's a few guys down there that, that are definitely worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, I'd add... Uh... I'd add Jonathan David to that list. He's a he's a guy who's playing in Belgium right now for Gent, and he, he was pretty solid at the Toulon tournament for Canada, just a really uh, solid out-and-out number nine. So uh, he's one of those younger guys that could be there. Um, and then Alessandro Busti, who's playing in Juve's yes. system, and uh, another... Another young guy who looked solid at Toulon, but also another one of those players where he has had some interest from the Italian national team system. Um, so, you know, there's there's no guarantees that he does even end up playing for Canada, but those are two other guys that um, potentially you could keep an eye on going towards 2026. Although, as we said, who knows how any of these will, will turn out and, you know, potentially one or, or none of them could be... Um, could be at that level by the time the tournament rolls around um but one person who potentially will be there as well um he considering he's the coach of canada right now and i think he's he's certainly has a long leash within the csa is john herdman um and uh, you know it's still far too early for me to say that herdman was a good hire for canada soccer and that this is all going to work out but the early results have been pretty good. The players all seem to really like him in terms of what they've been saying. The Toulon tournament was a good result for Canada. They, they did impress. Um, and the perhaps the biggest thing with Herdman is he has he does have that experience of leading a Canadian team into a home World Cup before. He did it with the women's side. Um, I think some mistakes were perhaps made there in terms of he went a little older with that roster and uh, but but you know he knows that he, he can kind of learn from those mistakes now and uh, that gives him some important experience going into uh, what's going to be a very crucial couple cycles for the Canadian men's national team. Yeah, I think the thing to like about Herdman is that he has that he has a very engaging personality firstly, which kind of unifies the program. And, and he also has that ability to look at kind of the big picture aspects beyond the, the senior team. And, and that's obviously what the men's national team needs right now. It needs, um, you know, complete oversight and, uh, and a complete thorough examination from top to bottom, not just in terms of the, the end product of the senior team, but what actually goes into that at youth level. And, and obviously Herdman is very dialed into that and, and wants to be involved at all levels, as we saw with him 
essentially taking the team along with Mauro Biello at the Toulon tournament. So I, I think he's he's a good person for the job. And obviously, as you say, he has that experience. And what I think we should also say is that for all the excitement about 2026 and, and potentially getting an automatic berth, Canada should be looking at 2022. You know, mm. I wouldn't say that they're odds on to qualify or anything like that because obviously there's you know three or four well there's three teams that are very likely to to qualify and then you're kind of fighting for that last spot but there's no reason why Canada in my mind if they're organized if if they're focused if they have kind of a, a unified vision can't compete with teams like Honduras and Trinidad and Tobago and Panama and and even potentially a Costa Rica team that's getting a little bit older and essentially hasn't changed since 2014 so there's an opportunity there in 2022 as well as 2026 they just need to excel you know <laughs> that's the word that's the, still not quite sure what it means but yeah. <laughs> um let, let's move on to uh Toronto FC um, and just a wild night at BMO Field. We've had a lot of those this season, but this was among the most bizarre for sure. Toronto FC going down 3-0 in that first half and then battling back to make it 3-3, going down 4-3 again and then um, coming out with a 4-4 draw that uh, I think made nobody happy, but um, considering the, the first half deficit, uh, Greg Vanny said he'll take um, what, what did you make of this? Uh, what, you know, just a, a weird game overall. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it was a good game for TFC, even no. with the comeback. Um, I think that first half was like, that's got to be the end of the line as far as I'm concerned in terms of the way they're trying to play at home right now. Like, it was just a catastrophe. And it's not the first time that they've had a kind of... They've never had one as bad as that, but it's not the first time they've had a first half collapse of that type this season. Um, and they just need to make some adjustments right now. I, I think this team is trying to play like the team it thinks it is and thinks it can be rather than the team it is right now, which is a team that's missing, still missing, arguably their two best defenders. Um, got the third one, Justin Mario, back in the second half and he made a big difference. But, you know, Greg Vanny was kind of fairly upbeat afterwards about the comeback. Michael Bradley, I, I thought my read on him was a lot different. He seemed pretty like ready for this break and and just frustrated with Mm. the way the team had played in the first half he said it essentially wasn't good enough and and they have to come back in a you know in a very different way in in 10 days time yeah the two things that really stood out to me that continue to be inexplicable problems almost for Toronto FC's back line is one they get pushed a little too far up the field sometimes they get uh, I, th- I think we saw on the first goal Nick Haglin kind of chasing down a ball in the middle and then on the yeah. second goal they were caught again uh, on the counter attack and and then you know Eric Zavaleta trying to play the ball out of the back on the third goal it's unbelievable how, how lax they are for a defense that's been giving up this many goals they don't seem to you know, you'd think if you were giving up this many goals, you'd sit a little further back, you'd be a little less aggressive, and you just try and uh, keep yourself behind the ball and make sure that, you know, if the opponents are getting shots, at least they're contested shots and uh, difficult opportunities. But it still seems like Toronto FC just want to push the envelope at home and they keep getting caught out for it. Yes, yeah, it's just open season in front of their defense right now. Like, I don't think there's enough players in the midfield who are kind of acting as something of a block is basically Michael Bradley on his own mm. um, 
you know they're playing this four one four one system at home especially with essentially two playmakers in front of Bradley which is a bit like what Manchester City did this year and like the, Manchester City did it and they did it very well but that's not a system that's common that's not a system that like has been successful for a ton of different teams across the board um, you, you need to be extremely good in terms of your ability to keep a ball and also your, your ability to press very aggressively and win it back quickly um, to play with that kind of, of midfield three I think and I just don't think they're there um, it, the balance has been too heavily tilted towards possession and, and attacking creativity and all of these things uh, rather than defence and also rather than maybe having a bit more physicality and pace in the team yeah teams teams are going to be able to to you know close you down a little more and, uh, and if they're not as afraid of you then, then it becomes difficult to to kind of have that possession and be as dangerous at home because you know if they're if they're not worried about your attack then they can kind of push a little bit forward kind of uh, you know we saw that last night from dc united they didn't seem afraid of toronto fc at all and last year teams would come in and they'd instantly lock it down but now teams know that they can go the other way and get goals so that's been a huge issue um but one positive right, sorry go ahead sorry just just to add to that the other thing they don't have without Josie Altador they didn't have until Tossin Ricketts came on is they don't have that ability to just play a ball a long ball in behind mm-hmm. um, there's nothing backing the other team up right now because Jovinko is on his own up front and I think when you, when Ricketts came in and then when Morrow came in and stretched things on the left hand side you saw a big difference in terms of TFC's ability to get the ball out of their own half and that's that's a good segue actually because uh, I did want to talk about Justin Morrow and his return. Um, he looked huge for Toronto FC. Evidently, it was two very different halves. That second half, they were completely dominant, and a big reason for that was Morrow's ability to push down that left side. And he does a couple things that obviously Telfer uh, did get the assist on the goal that um, started it all. But you know, he, for one, Morrow makes those great runs into the box he can, he sometimes almost acts like a another striker for Toronto FC and uh, you know they don't have another player who does that but also his ability to get wide and just float up crosses um, you know like Greg Vanny said after the game last night there's nobody in MLS in terms of a left back who, who does it just the way Morrow does and um, he's been a player certainly that Toronto FC have been missing in terms of having kind of a balance for the width that Arrow provides yeah, like you said, he's a really unique player in that he's not just an attacking left back. He's someone who makes, you know, he's so aggressive in the final third. Or he's essentially not a left back for most of the game. And you know, the way that kind of pushes teams back, forces them to respect his ability to get in behind on on the outside. Um, it makes a difference. And you know, I. I the way he was able to stretch the game, his quality, the quality of his deliveries from a left was was crucial for TFC last night. Um, and again, he's someone they've missed. And I think the way, again, they were able to get a kind of fast, direct player into the attack meant that they were able to progress the ball deeper into the DC half. And so when DC got back in possession and were trying to play out on counter-attack, TFC were able to get on top of them a bit closer to the DC goal uh, rather than maybe around halfway where space starts to open up a little bit more and and you saw TFC because they were able to do that they were able to Wimbles back more effectively and and kind of get those second and third um, you know 
uh, second and third phases of attack by winning the ball back and, and cutting out those counterattacks. We were kind of laughing after last night's game because Toronto FC did say that they wanted five points from from this stretch, <laughs> um, but they got it in a very bizarre way. Obviously, going up 3-0 in Columbus and then losing 3-3, um, you know, being down 3-0 last night and then drawing 4-4 and then that... Uh, it wasn't even that comprehensive of a win against Philly because they did allow a lot of chances. So, um, you know, obviously the points right now are absolutely huge, but it's it, it, while they maybe did hit their goal, I certainly don't think that they'll be happy with that stretch. No, I, I, I guess they'll be relieved at least to have put some points on the board. And mm-hmm. what is it, four points now that they're behind Orlando? Yeah, who four. Who are kind yeah. of melting, melting down as they like to do. <laughs> about this time of year so the, the relief will be that you know given all the kind of uh, problems and shortcomings that they've had through these past three games I didn't think the Philadelphia game was too bad but obviously the Columbus second half was a disaster the DC first half was a disaster um, given the two meltdowns they've had in three games essentially to put five points on the board is is a bit of a relief and, and obviously just keeps them in the picture and, and keeps them in a position where if they can string together two or three wins, um, you know, the picture starts to look a lot rosier. But, you know, it gets to the point where we keep saying, well, they're still there, they're still hanging thereabouts and they just need to put together a couple of wins and, you know, we're in June now and it hasn't happened. So it, it, it it's not just a case of this team turning it back on at some point that's, and, and that's a guarantee. You know, there are things that they need to fix right now. Yeah, if if there is that one positive, it, it is that all the other teams, obviously, Atlanta, the two New Yorks, and Columbus have basically made the playoffs already at this point. But yeah. um, anyone anyone below that, uh, I know New England are kind of hanging around there in uh, in terms of points. But to sound like your other podcast host, uh, their their advanced stats are, are not great. Um, they they still they still don't look like. Uh, on the numbers side at least a team that convincing and obviously Orlando have fallen off a cliff and anyone below Orlando hasn't been all that impressive so um, Toronto could find a way to get back into this if they can um, you know get healthy and start defending and and turn things around Um, let's move on or I guess back to the World Cup um, we started with the World Cup. We're going to finish off this segment with the World Cup. And uh, we're going to talk about England. Um, I took a bunch of shots at James Sharman about England uh, during <laughs> during last uh, week's show. But I'll, I'll be a little nicer uh, to you because, you know, honestly, I do think this England team is a definitely an interesting side at this World Cup. Um, a, a younger side, J- James pointed out to me that that's kind of actually been the case of the last three major tournaments where they've, you know, it's been touted that they've been bringing a younger side to to kind of turn the page and well it hasn't exactly happened yet but um there's a lot of quality to the side a lot of players who are coming in in great form uh after solid seasons the best season of of some of their careers so uh what are your thoughts on on this england team um i feel good about it i feel surprisingly optimistic about it um it, it has been the case that we've had some you know, young talent and that's been highly touted and so on before the last couple of tournaments. But I think, you know, personally speaking, I haven't felt particularly confident before either of them, um, particularly after what happened in 2010, where I thought they got off with a lot less criticism than they probably deserved, to be honest. Um, and then 
sorry, in 2014. Uh, and then in uh, Euro 2016, it was just like, I, I kind of saw that coming, not to say I told you so, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't think we were really going in the right direction in, in that cycle. Um, but I, there, there are things that Gareth Southgate, I didn't think he would be the man that I would be talking about in these terms, but there are things that he's doing that just kind of make sense to me and, and seem to be taking the team in the right direction. I think he's created a, a much more kind of relaxed atmosphere around the group, much more open and, and less of kind of a, a closed, um, you know, suspicious group of the media and so on and stuff like that. I think from a tactical point of view, what he is doing makes sense. Like the system he set out with three at the back kind of covers our flaws a little bit, in, particularly in midfield. Um, and plays to the strengths of, you know, A, we have a really talented centre-back in John Stones who can play out of the back, uh, and B, the the attacking talent, you know, Raheem Sterling, Dele Alli, Jesse Lingard and players like that who, who are dynamic attacking players. So I'm hopeful. Um, it could well blow up in my face uh, on Monday against Tunisia, but, but we'll see. I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm so excited to play this back for you after a nil-nil draw against Tunisia. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, I said no shots. I said no shots. No. Uh, as an aside, like honestly, growing up, I I did cheer for England a little bit. Um, there, there's an England jersey, you know, thrown at the back of my closet somewhere after uh, the nil-nil draw with Algeria. Um, I kind of wish I still had a team to to cheer for in this World Cup, but um, yeah, I got I got off that bandwagon pretty quick once I Probably for I, the best. I realized what was involved <laughs> um but honestly this you know england they did get a very good draw um yeah. p- perhaps one of the easier draws of, of a team of their stature in this competition um other than perhaps a uruguay so you know what do you make of this group and ov- obviously belgium will be the other heavyweight in the group but even they uh, have had all sorts of problems over the years so um you know and definitely an advanceable group for england yeah, I, I think in some ways the key games will be the Tunisia and Panama games rather than the Morocco one because, you know, that that's the kind of game that England have essentially drained their confidence in in previous tournaments, whether you look at Iceland, Algeria, um, I can't remember all the opponents, so I've wiped it from my memory, but like every single tournament essentially there's one game where we play a team we should beat um, and we either don't beat them and we draw 0-0 or 1-1 or we scrap a really unconvincing 1-0 win, as was the case, I think, with the Algeria game in, in the last tournament. So, And that essentially just saps all the energy and all the confidence from the group. Um, and so they've got to find a way to you know, be more effective than they have been in those kind of games, starting with Tunisia next week. Uh, and if they can do that and just get a bit of a good feeling into the group, then I think they have some potential. Um the Belgium game in a way is the one that I look at as a little bit more favourable for us because yes obviously they're far more talented than the other two teams in the group but as you said they're, they're not a team that's quite figured out uh, like some of the big powerhouses have yet and I think there's an opportunity for us there to be a little bit more cautious and counter-attacking and just wait for them to maybe make a few mistakes and, and pounce the other way so two very different types of game I think but um, we've, we've got to get off to a good start and we've got to get some some confidence running through the group by you know by doing what we need to, what we should do against Tunisia and Panama there's never not pressure on England but I feel like Belgium yeah. is one of those sides who 
kind of have all kinds of pressure on them right now and maybe yeah like compared to how it normally is this this england side kind of has a little bit more leeway so i wonder if that will end up playing big in that match just the the mental side um of that is there any player on this england side that you consider particularly key to how the tournament turns out i mean obviously uh guys like harry kane and, and sterling in the attack are going to be all the talk but is there anyone you're looking at in particular that um could make a huge difference in the way this england side can can go about this tournament yeah good question um Kane obviously stands out just because not only is he the best player in the team, but also he had a little bit of an injury at the back end of the season, mm. so we need to see him get over that. Um, beyond that, does anyone stick out in particular? I would say John Stones is going to be very important, uh, and how he's able to get on the ball and, and kind of set us, get us going from a from a first line of defence and, and through the midfield. He's going to be really important. And I think also in a similar sense, Carl Walker, um, mm-hmm. you know, playing in a slightly different position as the, the outside centre-back rather than as a wing-back. He, you know, he is probably... I'm trying to think if I'm missing anyone here. Maybe him and Sterling. I would say there are two best players beyond Kane. Um, and he needs to have a big tournament, Carl Walker, I think. Um, both... In, in defensive terms but also kind of uh, the same way with Stones you know pushing the team the other way and being that solid base to play out from at the back yeah the midfield is is the one thing that's definitely going to be interesting for England because yeah. um, there's there's not the quality there that there's been in, in past years but at the same time they do play a system that kind of allows them to um, you know, bypass that a little bit that allows them to not be as uh, as reliant on that midfield because they do have kind of the, the width to them and they can they can get forward that way and they they also do have you know the ball playing center backs who can get the ball forward um so you know how how are you looking at that that midfield and um how important that could be yeah i think this the back three makes sense mostly because of the fact that we just don't have very many good holding midfielders so you kind of create like a diamond in there with stones and henderson at the two uh, the top and bottom and then Walker and whoever the left centre-back is mm. um, either side and, and that kind of gives you a little bit of an ability to to build up from the back when you have the ball but also when you don't have the ball you know there's there's the the ability for one of the centre-backs to step in and be a bit more aggressive and, and, br- and break up play a little bit ahead of the defensive line because they have the two other centre-backs behind them so you know I'm hoping that that group together can kind of make up for for the deficiencies the team has in terms of defensive midfielders and not just defensive midfielders but deep midfielders who can play as well um and then you know it's, it's about if we can get that those clean build-ups from a back it's about getting Deli Ali and, and Jesse Lingard on the ball and getting them turning and going the other way um and you know th- those two players plus Sterling operating behind Kane have plenty of talent to, to put some goals on the board in this tournament and you know what before we finish up would be a successful tournament for England I think we were talking about this a little bit um, (laughs) you know like just winning a knockout stage game considering they haven't done it since I think 2006 against Ecuador um, in that sketchy old game but um, you know what what would be a successful tournament for England and how, how far do you see them potentially going well I think a good tournament for England would be getting out of the group um, 
and then beating whoever they get in the round of 16, which is likely to be, well, it is one of the teams from uh, group, I can't remember the letter, but it's H? the group with Col- H, I think. Colombia, Senegal, uh, yeah, Poland, H, yeah. and Japan, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Colombia are a good team, Senegal have some good players, Poland have Lewandowski, there's no easy games in there. Um, but they are, you know, none of them are Brazil or Germany or Spain or someone like that. And so they are they are beatable. There is potential for us to get a result there. So I think if we, you know, assuming we get second in the group behind Belgium, it's probably the safest pick. Um, if we can beat the, the team that wins Group H, that would probably be, for me, a pretty decent tournament. And then I think we're likely to run into Germany in the uh, quarterfinals. So <laughs> it probably ends there. But yeah, I, I think quarterfinals... It's weird to say because we always say the quarterfinals is where we get and then it kind of all collapses. But I think this on this occasion, quarterfinals would be a decent tournament. Yeah, maybe there's the you know, the change in expectations for England right there. If you wanna if you wanna point to yeah. point to where uh, you know where, where the change of perception is, it's it's that fact that the quarterfinal would be a success when usually that's that's a bit of a disappointment. But uh, yeah, thanks. Well, that's an imp- that's an improvement on uh, Euro twenty twelve, which that's was true. just a <laughs> and then twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen as well. Yeah, that's true. It's it's forward momentum. So uh, at any rate, Ollie, the, that'll bring us to the end of this show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Is there anything? Uh, you want the people to check out you, you've been good so I'll let you uh, promote your podcast as well if you'd like to <laughs> yeah we do a TFC specific podcast the Reds Report uh, myself and Joshua Cloak of The Athletic so we'll have kind of a mid-season episode out uh, probably tomorrow well Friday depending on whether this goes out when this goes out um, and we're yeah we're going to do some kind of mid-season grades for TFC and, and review all the players performances so check that out if you're a TFC fan well, thank you very much. And uh, every Monday at 5.30 on the Footy Talks uh, live Facebook page and Twitter account, uh, I'll be hosting Footy Talks TV. Um, use the hashtag Footy Talks TV and I'll answer your questions about soccer, just talking soccer for about 20 minutes every week. So make sure to check that out. And uh, on the podcast, we'll be continuing to look at the World Cup tournament uh, throughout the competition. Um, so looking forward to a great competition. I mean, it, it kind of sucks, honestly, that uh, there's there's always this first game and it's just one game. You always want uh, multiple games on that opening day, but uh, that we've got plenty of tournament left to go. So uh, just a little bit more patience now and uh, the competitions will start. And thanks everyone for listening.